Welcome to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. My name is Anand Upadhyay, and thanks for joining us. I'm proud to present my conversation with Zach Abramowitz, who approaches the legal industry from his perspective as a journalist, lawyer, investor, entrepreneur, and all-around connector in the field. In this episode recorded over 60 days into the pandemic, shelter in place, Zach and I talk about the concerns, ideas, and predictions we're hearing from all sides of legal, including whether law firms can still justify spending millions on expensive skyscraper real estate while increasing numbers of attorneys are working from home, how technology adoption looks in periods of uncertainty and fear, and overlaps between data science and startups in military and defense tech and in legal tech. As always, rate us on Apple Podcasts. We hope you like our conversation. Zach, thanks so much for joining me on the Modern Lawyer Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks, Adam. Great to be here. So, Zach, you are a fascinating person in the in the field of legal tech. Um, I, I'd love to have you introduce yourself to our listeners. You, you know, you're one of those folks who really has a lot of experience in a lot of different angles as an attorney at a top flight firm, as a journalist, uh, as a consultant. You, you know, you cover so many bases in legal tech, and you have so many perspectives with that. Can you give our listeners a sense of your background and who you are, Zach? Absolutely. So first of all, thank you for the introduction. I'm Zach Abramowitz. Um, according to you, I'm fascinating. Uh, I, I got my my start, you know, as as a lot of uh, your guests did as an attorney. Um, but I kind of, I, even I, I would say the, from the very beginning, when I started out at law school, I kind of figured out by end of semester one, that my legal career probably wasn't going to look like everyone else's legal career um, at NYU. Um, so my my second year, my, I assume my second year, my first, my second semester at NYU Law, I started working at ESPN Radio, the Max Kellerman Show, as a as a radio intern. And I was actually the legal intern on the Max Kellerman Show. Max Kellerman now is one of the hosts of uh, First Take on ESPN, and uh, and, and you know is obviously blossomed into a really amazing career. At the time, I went to him and said, hey, Max, I think you need a legal intern because you're always talking about these you know, stories on your show that somehow implicate the law. And you always say, you know, if I had a lawyer here, I could get better insight. So I'm going to be that lawyer. And, and he said, I don't really know why we need a legal intern, but sure, welcome aboard. So you know, my, from a very early part of my, uh, my legal career, I was kind of always trying to get out. But to, talking about Max Kellerman, actually, I, um, I had this conversation once with him and he said, you know, you have to really listen to the universe. And he, he said, as much as like, you probably don't want to hear this. He said, I feel like you're always going to be, you're going to have your big impact is going to be in the law. And he said, I know you don't want to hear that. And he was right, I think, about both. Um, my, my career has kind of been a, a multiple attempt at getting out of the law, <laughs> only to come back, um, but with perhaps more force. So I started off and I went to NYU Law. I graduated. Um, Max Kellerman had gotten fired from ESPN. So the opportunities of sticking it out with the show really weren't possible. Um, so I ended up starting like, you know, most, most attorneys as an associate, Schulte Roth and Zabel. I practiced for two years there in their corporate um, M&A department. 
So mostly working on like private equity deals. And during that time, I came up with my idea for my first startup, Reply All. Uh, a good friend of mine and I had had several long, deep exchanges by email. And I, I wondered aloud to him, you know, wouldn't it be really cool if you and I could take these conversations that we've been having and we'll publish them in front of a live audience, just as, you know, just like we're having a conversation right now, but everyone else in the world will be able to follow along with a fly on the wall. And the more we thought about it, the more we realized we couldn't be the only ones who wanted to do this, who wanted to publish some of our perhaps intimate conversations, but on really critical topics. And we kind of thought of it as a, a, a more, um, an easier alternative to a podcast. It didn't require people getting together. It didn't require even syncing up the you know, times. Um, now how did all this end up leading me back into legal? Well, the first website that I went to with the Reply All platform, and I said, hey, listen, I have this tool that I've developed. You can create conversations on your own site with this, with this tool that I've, I've built. Um, but I had been around the block long enough to know that the adoption of an early tool that had no brand visibility whatsoever, hadn't been on other big sites, I was going to have to come up with a little bit more of a, um, of a careful strategy. So what I did was I actually approached the bubble and said, hey, listen, I've developed this tool and I'd like to publish conversations myself. They had actually covered Reply All as a startup, so they knew who we were. Um, and David Ladd at the time said, yeah, absolutely. Come start publishing conversations here. And to begin with, I just, you know, kind of and Zach, the most just, famous just people I possibly could. Just, yeah. just the background of our listeners, Above the Law is the you know, very large, very well-known uh, online legal publication. And David Latt uh, is for also, for those who don't know, is the, the I believe, the co-founder of Above the Law. So Above the Law, uh, you know, opened its door. The founder, yeah, the founder. The founder, yeah, the founder, him and him and uh, uh, Ellie Mistel, right, I think, if I'm pronouncing his name right. Um, but um, they opened the door to you to, uh, you know, start publishing your, your Reply All content um on on that very well-read online publication yeah absolutely and they really gave the reply all conversations a, a new kind of audience i mean when we when we first started the company we were just doing it you know brand new site you've never heard of us being able to attach to above the law was amazing brand visibility and it actually allowed us to ink deals with ALM Media, with Bloomberg Law, even outside of law, the, the above the law brand carried a lot of weight. We were able to use, to, use, to leverage that um, that relationship into a deal with Sports Illustrated, with Huffington Post. Um, but the more that I kind of got involved in legal over the years, because again, to start off, I was just interviewing people using the Reply All tool. I was interviewing people like Mark Cuban, John Grisham, just the most famous people I could come up with. Again, the goal was not to get a permanent writing gig with Above the Law. But what happened was the conversations were doing really well. And David Ladd asked me, would you continue writing for us? And what I thought was, listen, this is an amazing opportunity for, really, for me to get inside the head of the end user. I'm going to become the end user. Um, Paul Graham from Y Combinator has a line I love that he says he always looks for problems or, or for companies where a, a founder is solving a personal problem. And for me, this was a deeply personal problem. I wanted to create these kind, this kind of content, and there just wasn't really an elegant way to do that. But what Above the Law gave them visibility was really amazing. 
So I decided, okay, you know what? I am going to publish every, every week. I'm going to publish one of these conversations, but I needed a topic and I, I couldn't just go out and get Mark Cuban each week. It doesn't work that way. It's a lot of work to, to, to land a big interview like that. So what I started doing was I thought to myself, you know what? I've got a legal background. I've got a startup background. Why don't I just combine these two? And I'm going to start interviewing people using the Reply All platform about legal technology and disruption. There's got to be like some interesting startups out there. And this is back in like 2014 when that first wave of companies, and I think you guys were amongst that wave of companies that had now gotten, now understood the realities of what Amazon Web Servers allowed in terms of creating companies and, and the kind of runway it took to get started. And you had that first wave of really innovative legal companies. In fact, like Case Tech, a lot of them coming out of Y Combinator, not all. But to give you a sense, my first interview with a legal technology company was with a, um, a company called Due Diligence Engine. Since then, uh, Noah Weisberg, the founder who I interviewed, of course, everyone in, in legal knows uh, as the founder of Cura Systems, one of the uh, big contract review companies. Um, my next interview was Nuri Bahor, who was the CEO of Law Geeks, which just raised another $20 million. I saw it announced last week. Jake from Case Text was one of my first interviews. So there were all these really smart people solving problems and that I felt I could really relate to because I had been a, an associate at a law firm. I had seen a lot of the inefficiencies. I had experienced a lot of the tools that, you know, perhaps legacy tools, not very user-friendly. And my initial thought on it all was really like kind of a human component was it should be better to be a lawyer. It didn't have to be as, as dreadful as it was, you know, and again, I, I didn't hate every part of the practice, but I didn't love every part of the practice either and thought that there could be a better world. So a lot of the, a lot of the companies that I was talking to, a lot of the founders I was talking to were solving very deeply personal um, problems for me. To give you an example of that, when you guys showed me Kara for the first time, my first reaction was, wow, this really could have saved me a relationship I had with a senior partner at my old law firm because the senior partner had given me a research uh, assignment. I thought we'd found every possible case on the matter and he was convinced there was something out there. Kara would have actually solved that problem for me. Uh, but again, that, that's, I think that's, that group of people, that group of startups really got me excited about legal technology. And I spent the next couple of years thinking, you know, what could I be doing if I were focused on building legal technology myself? So that takes us to, uh, you know, through, through a lot of your, your most recent work, what are the projects that you're um, putting your shoulder to now? I mean, what are you thinking about in legal technology now? Um, you know, where are you, where are you kind of pointing your talents, Zach? And I'll, I'll note for our listeners, Absolutely. if there's a bit of a, a delay here, and I think this, this may be one direction that you go, there's a bit <laughs> of a delay here. It's because I'm coming to you from San Francisco and Zach is coming to us from uh, a suburb of Tel Aviv in Israel. And, and, you know, I'd be gl glad to go into, um, you know, the differences and similarities between the Israeli legal tech and general tech scenes. I know you're very well steeped in that as well, but uh, just to give our listeners a heads up uh, with respect to a bit of the kind of C uh, you know, old school CNN-esque delay there. But I'd love to get in, Zach, uh, to what you are currently working on, where you're currently uh, pointing your talents. I would say this. I, I've, um, I've, I've 
certainly over the, gotten more involved in legal technology. Starting really in 2018, um, I, I guess I looked at what the, one of the trends I was looking at was law firms building technology and becoming more active in the technology scene. And to me, it just made a lot of sense. We've got a lot of smart attorneys out there. They're reading more and more articles. They're getting more creative. They're getting more imaginative. There's no reason why some of the big law firms themselves, who I knew internally, were already getting a little bit more aggressive with technology. I thought that was going to be a trend. And I wanted to bet on that. And I actually, um, I wanted to bet on that really any way I could. The first deal that I put together was with Gravity Stack. They're the technology subsidiary of Reed Smith. And I've been an advisor with them for a while, and I've been with them since they started their technology subsidiary. We even helped them develop the first, um, the first version or the first um, commercial version of their product, Periscope. Periscope was an e-discovery reporting tool that they had developed internally at Reed Smith to manage every as aspect of their e-discovery business. What we helped them do was take that product and re-architect it so that any organization that wanted to insource e-discovery could do it, but could do it with the best available tools. And they knew what companies needed because again, this had been a problem that they had solved. Again, to come back to that, point, that Paul Graham line, this was them having solved a problem that they had internally. They wanted to be able to better monitor and better report what was going on in e-discovery. Periscope helped them get there. So that was really the first direction I've gone in. But I've also invested, and I'm, I've, I'm an investor in LegalMation, and LegalMation also follows that similar trend, which is they are a law firm. LegalMation started off as LTL Associates, an IP boutique litigation in, uh, in Los Angeles, 40 attorneys, most of them who had split off, uh, for, many who had split off from uh, Quinn Emanuel. I shouldn't say they split off from Quinn Emanuel. They were Quinn Emanuel attorneys. They eventually went on to start their, uh, their own firm. Um, but when they got to, to litigating, they kind of realized, wow, if we want to be able to compete with the biggest law firms in the world, and we're a team of 40, we're going to have to come up with more clever ways to be nimble with technology. And one of the things that they developed was a way to respond to early litigation filings. They originally built that, again, for their own law firm use. But eventually, they went to some of their clients and said, listen, I know that you're the client of a law firm but we're spinning out a new technology subsidiary. And we think that the tech that we've been using under the hood, you could now use internally. And that's how LTL Associates turned into LegalMation. So we're seeing, I, I'm seeing this trend very often. Again, if you look at some of the top legal technology startups in the space, you know, case techs didn't come out of a law firm, but I would certainly argue that it came from very, very bright attorneys. Every one of the founders at LegalMation, the management team are, again, pretty accomplished attorneys. Um, but if you look at some of the other companies in the space, CS Disco started off as Cameron Sibley, a litigation firm. They've since raised hundreds of millions of dollars and built out uh, CS Disco into a really strong competitor in the e-discovery space. Logical, which is, you know, near you in, uh, in the Bay Area, started off as Logic Systems. They were a, uh, an alternative legal service provider. Not exactly a law firm, but some of the best startups actually start off in bigger, more established companies. 
How do you think um, the, the pandemic affects this, right? I mean, how do you how do you think the pandemic affects mm. uh, law firms investing in uh, law firm driven, you know, the, the gravity stacks of this world? How do you think uh, the pandemic yeah. will affect, you know, how law firms view their business model? I mean, this is a, you know, an intentionally extremely broad question, right? A lot of the pressure is um, is applied by the client. But how do you think law firms uh, and their relationship with legal tech, either uh, firm developed legal tech or their relationships with outside startup legal tech is going to be affected by the economic pressures of, of uh, the pandemic? Man, I almost want to ask you that question. I, I know I'm not allowed to turn around and become the interviewer. It's kind of my nature. Um, someone who does a lot of interviews. I, I think, and tell me if this has been your experience. My experience has been that if you invested in technology already, and if that was a big part of your mantra, then this is probably working out very, very well for you. If you were considering investing in technology, if you were considering investing innovation at some point in 2020, and then COVID hit, then you are probably not engaging in any new initiatives. Um, has that been your experience? Yeah, you know, that that tracks. I, I think um, it, it also could be a wake-up call to a lot of firms. Uh, you, you know, I had a, a really good conversation several weeks ago with Monet Fontleroy from Cooley, and uh, we were talking about the different responses with respect to work from home and remote work that firms were undergoing. Yeah. Certain firms, you know, like Cooley, you know, like Paul Hastings, like others, that are really doing an excellent job with it, right? They had the infrastructure built in, uh, you know, their their attorneys were were trained and kind of uh, acculturated to this ability to work from anywhere, work from hotels, work from home, work from work from the road, and so yeah. this is not a big burden. And then there's other firms that are in fire drill mode, even now, 60 days, 70 days in, are in fire drill mode where their uh, knowledge management, their IT is going crazy trying to figure out how their attorneys can can do work remotely, right? Two different sets of, uh, of law firms, right? The law firms that are preparing yeah. and uh, kind of imbuing all of their interactions and their culture with technology who are going to do just fine when something horrendous like COVID-19 hits, and then other firms who are a lot more reactive. So yeah, what you suggested tracks with, with what I've seen so far. I mean, it's our, it's our hope, and I think the legal tech community's hope, that um, this will be a wake-up call to firms to, to invest in legal tech, even if they weren't big consumers of legal tech in the past. Well, and I think that what you're also going to see right now is there are a number of firms that have experienced, or a number of clients rather, that have gotten really big wins out of technology. So I, I can tell you this, you know, knowing Gravity Stack, there are a couple of, of Gravity Stack clients. They got really, really big wins um, as a result of work that they had done pre-COVID. And, and they've published information on this. I'm not telling you anything, you know, too insidery here. Um, but I've, I got to talk with the partners and, you know, some of the, the clients about those wins. And what I can tell you is when you get those wins, word gets around, right? So whether it's other partners at Reed Smith now going to Gravity Stack because with their clients' problems 
um, to try to get let, let them solve, you know, because the law firm is a big place. You know, not every you, you've been in a big law firm before. Not everyone always knows everyone. When you get a when you start getting big wins, and again, I think a lot of technology companies and and the companies that use them, the companies that have invested in technology, have definitely got a big win. On on the work remote point. I, I'm a little bit nervous for, for law firms in a, in a number of ways. First of all, I don't think r- remote work translates very well for a lot of firms. And work remote is almost a cultural point. It's it's a understanding that we don't care about FaceTime in a company. We really just care about getting it done. And not every company can be that way. Not every company is designed for that. And I would argue that a lot of law firms are not particularly designed well for remote work. Uh, you know, when you're when Twitter allows everyone to, to work from home, and all it means is, hey, let's let's do our Zoom catch-ups about how much Twitter is growing and what new marketing campaigns of what they're coming out with and what new products are we developing. That kind of stuff can be done from the comfort of your own home. It's a lot harder when you're taking depositions or when you're just prepping for depositions or where you're having a particularly tense client uh, phone call. Right. Those are not things you necessarily want to do remote. And I, I, I wonder if, if work remote is going to work out as well as we think it is for a lot of law firms. And I, I mean, if you had told me as an associate I could work from home, I would have been thrilled. But I almost wonder if it doesn't create a, a, some of its own problems. Yeah, you know, this is a, a fascinating point to me, not just on culture, but also on uh, issues of real estate and commercial real estate. I think a lot of our listeners might have read uh, that article in the New York Times uh, talking about a lot of commercial real estate folks, a lot of um, you know Manhattan caterers, a lot of restaurants, a lot of uh, you know a lot of the ecosystem associated with office work in Manhattan, with corollaries, of course, in Chicago, San Francisco, L.A., uh, any big city. Yeah. That uh, that. But all eyes are on New York these days. Correct. That yeah, certainly, certainly, it's it's you know the bellwether with respect to office work, right? If you just look at the total number of uh, square footage of commercial real estate, it's just off the charts. But you know, the question is um, whether people are going to move back and work from offices again, and whether this this uh, ecosystem is going to be stimulated. I was talking to a friend of mine who uh, works at a hundred, hundred fifty attorney firm, kind of midsize, uh, very small. Uh, you know, very small, big firm or, or large midsize. And he was talking about how the firm is really assessing whether they need their kind of flagship, expensive San Francisco real estate, right? You know, uh, there were a firm that were very anti work from home. The culture was butts in the chair at nine o'clock, right? And certainly you could leave at 5.30 or six. Yeah. And, you know, it's not big law where you're expected to be there around the clock, but you were expected to be there the vast majority of the time. And they're looking at the last 60 days. And you know what? It's gone well. The people that they have at the firm, the attorney, yeah. turn out to be diligent and hardworking and trustworthy and honest. And they're still doing the work and billing the time. And so the discussion at the firm right now at the top levels is, do we need the you know these three floors in this extremely expensive high rise in San Francisco? Um, as we were talking about, you know. You know, yeah. are we even going to get clients visiting here anymore? <laughs> Do we need this? And so, you know, associated also with the work remote kind of thing, there's all kinds of these uh, like dominoes that fall based on that. I don't know whether you have any any opinions with respect to that. And certainly when I'm yeah. 
huh. New York, LA, Chicago, certainly well, you know, Tel Aviv and, and uh, you know, uh, um, Hong Kong and Beijing. You know, uh, every big city is kind of is implicated here. Man, you're like getting me ready for some serious hot takes. So let me uh, let me first of all give my my background where I have any right to talk about this. I have commuted every single way you can imagine: bus, train, um, subway, plane. For crying out loud, international, local. Um, I've also worked from home, and I've, so I've done all these experiences. And what I think you're going to see is. Yes, there's a six-month period where work remote feels amazing. I hope that the law firms wait six months before making any rash decisions. I can tell you the first six months I worked from home, they were amazing. I'd never gotten that much work done. I didn't have the stress of my commute. It was everything I imagined it would be until I started feeling like, you know what, like my home is becoming a stressful place. I've had these stressful conversations on the couch, in the kitchen, in my bedroom. And those were not places that I really wanted to designate as work zones. Throughout, you know, in, in the later part of my career so far, I've, I've been much more intentional about having places that I refer to as workplaces and then places that are, you know, comfort zones. I think segues are also very difficult, you know, just jumping in and saying, okay, now I'm going to start work now. And now on that last call, now I'm finished and I can go back to my family. Not so simple. Not, not so simple at all. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'll tell you this. I, I spoke, I spoke to, a, to, the, to a manager, senior management at one of the big law firms this week, and he repeated something that you just said, which is, listen, I don't remember the last time we actually hosted lawyers at the offices. So at this point, the only reason we really have the nice offices and you're not going to believe this, are to recruit other attorneys, many of whom might actually prefer to work remote. But again, I wonder, number one, will, will they like remote work, not six months from now, but a year from now? And what's the, what's the tail risk there? Is it also fair, you know, uh, as, a, as a consequence from all that you're talking about, for a client to say, hey, look, we'll pay for your attorney time. But you know what? We're not gonna we're not gonna fund your real estate costs. You know, law firm of of, of Abramowitz and Abramowitz. Um, we really, really respect your uh, your experience and your legal education, and we'll pay you for what that's worth. But um, you know that that uh, high rise you have in Manhattan that to us is worth nothing. We uh, haven't visited it. Uh, we aren't gonna visit it. We have we don't really care. We understand that all of your associates work better from home anyway. So kindly cut the commercial yeah. estate part of the bill, itemize that, remove it, and send that along to me. Thank you very much. Is that, I mean, obviously, I'm obviously, you know, kind of making a, a, a caricature. No, I, listen, I, I, I hear it to a certain extent. And let me tell you where I, where I think that might, maybe this is an opportunity to, um, to turn into the curveball, so to speak, or to, or to um, this, this is sort of against the grain, but just kind of bear with me. A law firm, it's true that it looks very inefficient to have the building, to have the fancy offices, and I get all that. But what I think it does communicate, and this is where I would take issue with, with the, um, 
with with the with the uh, the, the uh, senior management member I spoke to. God, when you're when you're trying not to like mention someone's name, you have to like really come up with like clever ways to do it. <laughs> this person from the big law firm who I spoke to um, said to me uh, again, his point was the only reason we have these are to recruit. And while I understand that yes, maybe people work better remote, there is something about working with an established brand name. And part of what goes with that is an office. Now, do firms necessarily need to have as much space as they currently have? No, I think they probably should rethink space in general, and I think they should rethink remote. But I do worry about firms that are not really remote businesses going remote kind of overnight. And what the, again, what the long-term effects, what are the unintended consequences are? You know, look, recessions give rise to economic changes, oftentimes precipitated by clients. Oh, for sure. As a as a truism, right? You know, you look at, at this is this is not meant to be reductive, but you know, you, if you look at pre two thousand eight, many more firms were comfortable and successfully passed along Westlaw bills to their clients. Pre two thousand eight, that was very yeah. Typical, uh, you know, a fairly typical business practice. Now it still happens sometimes, but it's not a typical business practice. You know, some of the top top law firms doing super high level bet the company work can do that because it's a drop in the bucket anyway. But based on my experiences, the vast majority can't do that anymore. Right? The, the major shift, and this is a multi million dollar yeah. shift if you're a large law firm, is in 2007. All of your Westlaw bills and Lexus bills and other bills were passed on to the client. By 2010, you're eating the vast majority of those, right? I wonder what kind of yeah. this uh, this pandemic caused recession uh, will cause, if any. So I, I think the answer is we were already headed there, and I'll give you my anecdotal um, evidence. If you think about clock, if you think about who the speakers have been at clock over the last few years, um, who are the sort of founding members? You're talking about San Francisco Bay Area companies, right? Google, NetApp, um, HP. These were all tech companies. And I do think that in not every instance, there are, I'm sure there are legal departments of tech companies that are a big mess as well. But I think in general, a lot of the technology companies have been a little bit forward thinking about things like legal operations, about um, bringing in technology to solve problems. I think sometimes too much is made of like being a tech company, but it, on the whole, it's true. What I've seen, the people who are getting in touch with me these days, the, the companies that are, that are really interested in, the, in like, hey, Zach, tell us what the, the top cutting edge tech is. What should we be, who should we be talking to? I'm not getting those questions from the Facebooks and Googles of the world. I'm getting it from very established, you know, Fortune 50 companies, but even banks, um, private equity, not necessarily the players, the same players as you've seen on the, on the uh, legal tech circuit, right? This is a new group of people. And I think when the more mature companies start realizing, hey, everyone else has tested this, we kind of sat back, we waited, but now we too realize that we need to be more aggressive and not only what we demand from our outside counsel, 
what we demand from ourselves as well. And COVID, I think, can probably accelerate that in a lot of ways. And again, go back to the gravity stack instance I gave you. I think more than the fear are the wins. When someone had a huge win, we saved, oh my gosh, I can't even tell you the time and the money and the agony we saved by engaging and doing that, you know, contract data extraction project or by switching over the way that we were doing legal research. This would have been such a disaster had we not made that investment before. Those wins are going to get around and that is going to accelerate change. Zach, do you think the pandemic heralds a new era in legal operations? Uh, you, you mentioned Clock. You mentioned that you're working with a lot, a lot more established, you know, Fortune 50 companies. Um, you know, I agree with you that legal ops has caught fire among a lot of very forward-looking companies. Some companies that are, you know, relatively new for large cap companies, right? You know, 15-year-old, 20-year-old companies that are worth billions of dollars that are household names. Um, but among the companies that are 100 plus years old, uh, things might be slower to catch. Uh, do you think that yeah. well, pandemic and the pandemic caused recession is really going to uh, light that fire so that legal operations becomes a must-have role at all large companies, not just the, the you know, SF-based tech companies? I wish it was a simple answer. I've seen a lot of conflicting evidence, right? You would think that, okay, in, in the wake of a crisis, what we need is someone in legal operations. This, this is going to be the person that helps us save, that helps us optimize. Um, we're going to take that more seriously. Same time, I've heard of people in legal ops who've gotten fired, right? I've heard of, of multiple clients who've fired people in legal ops. David Cambria, the godfather of legal operations, used to say that legal ops is a non-core discipline of a non-core discipline. And that can also work in the other direction where you might think, you know, this would make a lot of sense for us right now. Some companies won't see it that way. Some companies aren't seeing it that way. On the other hand, I'm seeing some companies really do maybe even like engage in new initiatives. Um, as a result of as a result of COVID, um, and or or at the very least, I've seen a number of companies who are moving in that direction get more aggressive about their legal operations staff. I, I had a company reach out to me just the other day, huge company, you would know the name, and asked me, "We're hiring a head of legal operations. Who do you know?" And that's you know what a time to be doing it. So that's a perfect example. And let me give you the last bit of counter evidence because what I've said. A lot of conflicting evidence here. I look at clock and I look at how important you see clock may may be you know a, the best party in Vegas in the legal industry. I kind of think of it as a lobbyist group disguised as a party in Vegas because what Connie Brenton um, and Lady Mary O'Carroll and the new team there what they were always very good at was selling the industry on this is why you need someone in legal ops. I don't mean to say they were engaged in fake marketing. Be very, very clear. They were very good at making the case to the legal industry over the course of a few days in Vegas why this was really a necessity. And then they carried it through with education during the year. But what happens when you remove clock one year? And then what happens when next year companies are looking at their budgets and saying, 
why do we have our legal ops person going to a conference in Vegas for three days? I don't know. And I think that's a really big question mark, which is what is the future of, of clock as a conference, number one, because it was a very, very critical uh, event for those who attended. What happens when you're so event driven, right? It's like, I don't know if you saw the New York uh, Times article about Disney, you know, and how leveraged they are on the experience of coming to one of their parks or going to see their movies in the theaters, none of which is very good for them right now. I, I kind of feel like clock might be in a similar place, um, and we'll have to see. That's fascinating. I love that David Cambria quote, by the way. Um, I've never, I've never heard that, huh. but that that encapsulates a lot, a lot of uh, kind of important important thinking in that area. Yeah, Zach, one of the one of the reasons uh, I, I find you <laughs> very fascinating in your presentations at, at conferences. I've seen many. You know, uh, I've seen you up on panels. I've seen you uh, giving giving presentations over the years. Uh, you've got uh, a pretty broad perspective on the startup landscape generally, uh, the startup landscape in the U.S., but also in Israel, the startup landscape in legal tech, but also in military tech and military contracting. Yeah. You've said some interesting things uh, over the years, some things that have caught my, my, uh, my ear with respect to similarities or overlaps between legal tech and uh, military tech and the way that they acquire data, use data, yeah. uh, approach problems. Um, and, and it's something that I've, I've never heard anyone else talk about. Um, what are some themes that are top yeah. of in that, in that area? So Jeff Markle, who we mentioned before, once told me he had a brother in, in the military and he said, um, yeah, I think if I remember correctly, the quote was tacticians speak in logistics. Um, it, it, I think it was something about like planning. I'm totally butchering this quote. I'm sorry, Jeff Marple's brother. But the 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 idea is what what we got on the talking was what if he would bring military style um, discipline and 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 rigor and logistics to legal. What would that look like? I've discussed this a bit with Justin Ergler as well from GSK, who was also in the military. Um, Plus, you know, the, where I was kind of coming from it is if you think about some of the, the most uh, impactful technology that we use, a lot of it started off in the military. The military has always been very good at identifying the most bleeding edge technology. Um, certainly the U.S. military, it, it's the, look, it, it's the kind of dirty little secret, both of Israel and of Silicon Valley for that matter, that both of those markets, especially in their technology markets, got their started as a result of the military. Yeah, in the case of, uh, of Silicon Valley, it was all the engineers from the US Navy. As to the he, US, People ask me all the time, they said, how does Israel have a, yeah, how no, does Israel have a conflict and this really big high-tech economy? Yeah. No, no, please, please. No, I was just gonna talk about uh, DARPA in the US and, and you know, if you trace back the roots of servers and uh, the earliest internet in quotes, uh, you see how much government influence and military defense influence was in there. So very much echo that in the U.S. as well. And and I just spoke to a company I can't mention, but I spoke to a company today that specifically has people uh, from DARPA uh, who are who are working with them. So it, it it was one of the first instances I've heard when you mentioned it. It was like, wow, that was really timely because speaking to a company today that that had that was using people that worked 
in the government and even being able to get government grants to get going. I, I think that's gonna that's definitely gonna be a theme. What I've seen on my own is a number of technologies that were developed. If it, well, let's let's take a step back. Think about GPS. Let's start in the military. Waze. That's 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 military technology, right? Bose headphones. You kind of go down the list and realize a lot of the technology that we use as consumers may have been developed in the army. Well, I, I've met a company um, last year in Israel um, called Interview, and Interview started off essentially in the Israeli military, and they wanted to apply those skills that they had in investigations, usually surrounding terror threats. They wanted to apply that to um, that, that kind of top-level investigations. They want to bring that to internal investigations and e-discovery. And they've developed a really interesting platform um, that, again, brings, brings the way that the, that the Israeli army would look through emails to get to the smoking gun so they can prevent a terror attack from happening, bringing that exact same uh, discipline again to, to internal investigations and e-discovery. I'll give you one that's off the, the uh, off the radar a little bit for legal. There's a technology that's basically been developed augmented um, uh, augmented intelligence, which is the idea of getting you know great insights out of your data. That or aug augmented reality is I think the other way it's referred to. Um, what we're what there's a there are a couple of companies that have essentially come out of the Israeli military, meaning all the developers worked in top units, like Unit 8200 is the, is the sort of most famous example, and they've come out and now started these companies. So one of the the companies is pretty you know uh, pretty well known here in Israel is a company called Spark Beyond. Spark Beyond is the analytics for McKinsey. So when McKinsey, when McKinsey does all of their data analysis, they're using Spark Beyond to do it. Spark Beyond also works directly with a number of huge Fortune 500s. They're starting to look into legal and they're starting to say, hey, listen, what are your biggest data problems that you're experiencing as a legal department, whether it's better insight into your cases, better insight into your risk? We can give you a lot of that. Now, that's not a legal technology specific, but it is a technology that was, again, comes from the military originally that I do think we're going to start to see that kind of high level AI really penetrating. I think I said this, you know, once that the AI is not the um, it's not the future anymore; it's the present. That's this is a you know perfect example of that. There are a lot of companies that have you know we, we used to joke about in all the uh, legal tech panels. You know, is it what is really art? Is it really artificial intelligence? Is that a meaningful term? By the way, I, I should note that I think part of the reason you enjoy me on panels is I give you shout out. In almost every panel that I'm on, that, that is true. That is true. You put put me on the spot, and I appreciate it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, as to that point, though, Zach, you know, I, I want to um, go go to something you said uh, about how all of these very data focused, you know, if I could use a, a hackney term, big data entrepreneurs are looking at yeah, they're turning their kind of focus to law. I had a really good conversation with with uh, you know a couple people you know Scott Rechtschaffen among among others Gino Grady has has been talking oh, about sure. for many years and it's about how the law firm of the future and I put that in kind of kind of uh, quotes right what does the future mean is it ten years is it thirty years you know what does that mean but the law firm of the future 
will have uh, a, a chief data officer and a, and that chief data officer is going to be oh, a, 100%. Right? Like you're going to have a data scientist, someone who can in a deeply technical way, not just like a former lawyer who's read a couple uh, magazine articles, but like a real data scientist, maybe a PhD mathematician or something like this, kind of sitting atop all of the firm's data, whether it's billing records, whether it's documents in the DMS, whether it's emails, whether it's whatever it may be, HR records, and um, you know, making calls based on that. Evan Parker is another person who's uh, uh, a status. Well, well, look, look at the litigation funds, right? Litigation funds in a certain way are already providing that service. So many of the litigation funders are quants. They're hedge fund guys. They're not necessarily like lawyers, like you would think of. They don't necessarily work at the law firm, but they're part of that process. And I do think you're correct. I I think we're absolutely going to see that. I think a lot of our, you know, the data scientists that we have right now in legal, but really working on things like pricing. Think about like someone like J.O., right? That, when I think of data scientists and legal. But are we going to only be putting data scientists on, um, on pricing? Or are we going to be putting them on things like, hey, let's, let's help figure out for our client which way this case is going to go. Let's give them a decision tree that is entirely backed at every single stage by the most sophisticated, well-corroborated data. I don't think that's going on right now, but I agree with you. That 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 is the law for the future. Yeah, I had on the podcast a few weeks ago Richard Susskind, right? The famous author Richard Susskind, and and the famous, yeah, the the, fam- the famous kind of futurist uh, author. And and one of the things that he said that stuck out to me was, you know, the 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 future employee in the legal profession is less likely to be a kind of an uh, and, and I'm absolutely butchering this, but less likely to be a kind of an individual contributor or a individual bespoke tailor of legal briefs or legal analysis, and more likely to be a systems builder. And that really stuck out to me. And, and when I think about that, I think about someone with reasonable legal judgment, uh, but someone with excellent technical chops, excellent um, organizational ability, and an excellent ability and knack for being able to spin up systems and spin up exactly as you mentioned, you know, flow charts and decision trees and abilities to quickly communicate to the client uh, in a structural way, maybe in a portfolio of litigation sense, how the client should approach a particular thing. Absolutely. I mean, I, I can speak with my, my own experience here. You know, our, our common friend, Brian Bratcher, you've had on the podcast, started off in e-discovery I don't know if he ever thought that he would, you know, become, you know, a a in law firm, you know, the, the leader of a law firm technology unit. But I think what's happened is, and I think this is what you'll con- you'll see continue to happen is, there are some very talented people already inside a lot of these organizations, and they're going to get promoted. And organizations that don't have those people are going to look for them because that's going to be that will be the new standard. I think that. One of the things I heard from a, from a chief legal officer, very, uh, very, very big company, again, you'd know the name, said, when I go to the board meeting, everyone else has really fancy charts and numbers, and I can't even tell you what's in our contracts. And I think that's a, a, a real process. You know, who do the GCs, who do the chief legal officers, who do they want to impress? It's not other attorneys. It's the other members of their board. 
Right. And I think that I think that a lot of law firms are going to need to learn to speak the language of their clients if they want to keep those clients. Yeah, I love that. I love that. You know, uh, I've had a lot of discussions with various insurance companies, big and small. And, um, you know, what I've heard from a lot of insurance companies is that the outside counsel that they most prefer to work with are outside counsel who kind of shares their worldview, right? That kind of uh, uses their vocabulary and uses the, the same kind of metrics they use uh, at, you know, in-house uh, at their outside counsel firm. And, and that struck me as uh, very consistent with something that Jason Barnwell, who I know is a mutual, mutual acquaintance, mutual friend of ours, yes. is that you know, he wishes law firms would spend more time understanding the business of their client as opposed to just getting deeper and deeper in the weeds as to how things are done in their legal business. Which, you know, to Microsoft is not all that interesting, right? I mean, uh, the way things have always worked in legal really doesn't concern Microsoft. Microsoft wants legal to understand its challenges and its problems. I, you know, so I'm fascinated by that, by the structure that you just, you just laid out. And I think likely, if I'm to, to, to make a guess here, that is going to accelerate, right? Clients are becoming more powerful, increasingly powerful, and they can, uh, they can dictate now more so than ever, the direction that law firms, law firms take. Uh, Zach, I want to uh, you know, wrap up with, with one question here. And this question is only becoming more challenging in light of the very uncertain and pretty terrible time that we're in right now globally with this, this pandemic as it affects public health, as it affects the economy, as it affects uh, you know, individual people. But you know, typically on this podcast, uh, I, I ask my guests to uh, provide some predictions, right? So what I want to do is ask you, mm. from whatever perspective you want to take this, right, from the legal industry as a whole, from any of the topics that we've w that we've discussed, um, can you provide our listeners with a prediction that, as we know, may just come untrue in like two months because things are so crazy right now and so uncertain. But can you make a prediction about legal technology, about client demands, about the legal industry, about hell, about commercial real estate that you can share with our huh. our listeners here? And that prediction should be, you know, pretty long range, you know, 10 years out, 25 years out. Well, it's always it's always easy to make a 25 year out prediction. Let me see if I can make a more short-term prediction, and maybe it'll come true. Um, the first thing I think you're going to see on the legal tech side, and I think this is happening already pre-COVID, but it's certainly going to happen post, is if you, you're going to see some non-legal specific companies get more actively into the legal space. Okay? So I think it's very, very possible that you're going to see Salesforce and or ServiceNow and, and some of those companies get more involved in legal. I've already seen ServiceNow inside multiple legal departments handling workflow. I think that's a trend you're going to see much more. Non-specifically legal technology companies, you will begin to see them more in the legal space. And I think you'll also see them acquire companies in the legal space uh, and I think that probably will get accelerated as a result of COVID. Mm. 
And you're not even talking about the big four, Zach. You're talking about uh, you know companies totally uh, currently removed. I always look. Yeah, sorry. I I always look for the White Walkers, right? I always look for the who's who. Who are you not paying attention to? I hear more and more and more about the big four and how the big four are coming for legal business. But the thing is, you can you can find those articles from the 1980s as well. There's always kind of been a threat there, and they always seem to coexist in some in some way. Um, I don't think that's going to change. I think that that'll probably continue as a kind of cat and mouse game for years ahead. I'm talking about companies that are completely off anyone else's radar, right? I, I'm looking at, at, at companies, um, again, litigation funds are, are one, but even farther outside of that, just general technology companies that may start solving really, really critical problems for legal. Zach, I can uh, talk to you for another hour about this. <laughs> I can talk to you for more than, more than another hour about this. I feel like we've really- You would, you would at least get one soliloquy out of me at, <laughs> from, from in, in an hour. Uh, no, I really appreciate it, Zach. I, I know you've been very generous with your time. I know it is very late over there in Israel right now. I mean, I'm, I'm coming to you at you know, 10.30 in the morning from San Francisco. I really appreciate you um, joining me on the podcast and sharing your views. And, uh, you know, it's just always fascinating. I always learn something, Zach, when I talk to you. And so I really appreciate your insights here. Thank you so much, Anna. Always a pleasure to talk and uh, anytime. Thanks for listening to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. We always love hearing from you, and we highly value your feedback. Reach out to me at onin at casetext.com, tweet at us with the hashtag modernlawyer, and check us out at modernlawyerpodcast.com. We hope you join us for our next episode. Special thanks to the Case Text team, especially our producer extraordinaire, Abby Hadidian. See you soon.